One of the reasons that I like that confessional statement is it talks about wandering from the ways of God, and uh, we see that in Jonah, right? He uh, not just wanders, that sounds like an accidental kind of meandering, um, but a very intentional leaving uh, the ways of God and running from God. And so we see that in Jonah, as we talked about last week, and we see that, I believe, in our own lives as well. Uh, Last week, we talked about the fact that we need grace as we talk about the depths of grace in the book of Jonah and how we all need grace because we intend to sin, we invest in sin, we take comfort in sin. And so we saw Jonah, a prophet of God, a messenger of God, who was very intentional about his rebellion, uh, how he... Uh, his rebellion cost him, and he was willing to pay what it cost. He invested in buying, renting out the ship to take him somewhere. Uh, and remember, he was going the total opposite direction, and not just in a little bit. He was going like five times the, direction, the distance he was supposed to go in the opposite direction he was supposed to go. Uh, and that he took comfort in his sin. He was resting. He fell asleep. And just this idea of thinking... Um, convincing himself maybe that he could escape the presence of God, uh, trying to get away from the people of God and the things of God. And so uh, Jonah was called out, right? He was told to rise and go. Uh, And the way that Jonah, the book, the text is written, kind of gives us these interesting juxtapositions or ways to kind of contrast, compare the different things, and it sets up the expectation because it says, Jonah, arise and go, and it says that Jonah arose and he fled, and so he did the opposite. He got the getting up part right, and then he went in the wrong direction. He's supposed to go and call out Nineveh for their evil. Um, This is an enemy of the people of Israel, an enemy of God, full of just evil practices, and so he's called to go and uh, even proclaim judgment, to call out against their sin, but Jonah does not want to go and do this, and so he's rebelling against God's call and mission on his life. He's setting sail on a long journey to Tarshish, which is in the total opposite direction, to avoid all of this, but God hurls wind. It says God hurled a great wind at them, causing a storm. The ship is on the verge of breaking apart while Jonah is asleep down in the cargo hold, down in the depths of the ship. The sailors come and wake him up, and they ask him a series of questions, which uh, I learned through study, not of uh, just my own wisdom, but people smarter than me who have studied these things and explained these things, uh, that the series of questions they ask him really are based, uh, based on the Near Eastern religions, were a series of questions which would help them identify the deity uh, to which Jonah worshipped. And so they weren't really asking because it's like, where are you from? You know, what kind of people? What do you do for a living? Um, they're not just trying to get his biography. Like, who are you? Maybe we can find some fault in you. These are questions that would point to who do you worship? Because they realize this storm is coming from a higher power. They want to know which higher power they need to try to appease. This is their thinking. Uh, and so this list of questions was really getting to the point of, Jonah, who is your God? Because maybe your God is the one who did this. And of course, Jonah, uh, full of kind of contradictions as he's trying to avoid the people and things of God and and the calling of God on his life, uh, he speaks truth in this moment when they call and ask him these questions. And he says, listen, I worship the the one true God, the God of the sea and of the land. And this is a way of him kind of refuting some of the pagan gods uh, that they believed were over these things. And he's saying, I'm a Hebrew. And so uh, I worship Yahweh, who is over these things, sovereign over these things. Uh, And so then they understand, okay, so your God is probably the one we need to try to call out to. 
Um, and there's a kind of a deep sense of conviction we see in them as they turn and uh, are, are worshiping Yahweh. It's kind of an interesting um, distinction, not just, okay, well, we'll just worship your uh, lowercase g God and try to get out of this mess. They actually turn to Yahweh by name. <clears throat> and so, as he points them to the one uh, true God, uh, he tells them to throw him into the sea, right? To just throw me overboard and um, that might appease, uh, that will uh, stop your problems because the God that I worship is, is upset with me. And so, uh, they do it. They throw him overboard and it works. The seas are calmed. Um, now, I want you to, to think about this. When Jonah gets tossed overboard, um, he's not banking on surviving, right? He thinks, he sees this as, throw me to my death. Um, and there's almost a sense, again, in Jonah of like, hey, this is going to be okay for you guys um, once I'm out of the picture. Uh, but it's not, uh, I'll, I'll get out of the ship so you guys can live, and then I can live and go back to what God has called me to, or I can continue to escape. Uh, it's almost this ultimate escape from God's call in his life as we see Jonah kind of just resigning himself to like, I'd rather die than go on the mission that God has called me to, to minister to the Ninevites. I mean, that's a deep, deep uh, hatred, uh, dislike, um, great enmity between the Ninevites and the Israelites, right? These are uh, Assyrian enemies of the people of God. So Jonah basically is saying, uh, just in my life, God, and let's just get this over with. I'll, I, I know I can't outrun you, so just take me, basically. And so God uh, had a plan for Jonah, though. Um, and in Jonah's effort to die, uh, God thwarts Jonah's effort to die. Um, He's thrown over the sailors. This is the part that I thought was really cool. When, it, when the sailors cry out to God, if you look in verse, uh, this is back in chapter 1, verse 14, <clears throat> it says, the sailors called out to the Lord, and it says, O Lord, and it quotes them, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And Lord is all caps, right? So that's them calling on Yahweh by name. And so there's this sense that they have actually turned in belief to Yahweh, uh, the one true God, even as Jonah is in this rebellion and in this fight for his life and surrendering and trying to just get out of the whole picture, where these sailors who thought they were just going to Tarshish and getting paid to do it have now faced death, been rescued from death, and are calling out to the one true God. And so it's another one of these amazing scenarios where God uses these crazy circumstances um, to bring people to himself, to show people who he is, um, to show his power. Um, <clears throat> so Jonah thinks he's going to his death in the sea, and that's where we pick up today. Chapter 2, uh, actually the end of chapter 1, and I'm going to read all of 2 and all of 3. So get comfortable. Um, but it's an exciting story, so uh, maybe that'll help you. Starting in Jonah 1, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. 
The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed up upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Chapter 3, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So Jonah, swallowed by a fish that was sent by God, has this time of prayer. Um, God speaks to the fish. We don't get to hear that conversation, uh, but God speaks to the fish. The fish vomits Jonah out, uh, and then it's finally, right, he arises and goes to Nineveh, uh, according to the word of the Lord, right? He finally obeyed the calling to go and call out against the Ninevites. Um, and they repent. They turn from the evil ways. They turn to the Lord. Uh, we'll see how Jonah feels about that next week. Um, if you know the story, it's not a big uh, surprise to you. Uh, or if you just read along into chapter 4, not a big surprise to you. But today, in chapters 2 and 3, um, I want to point out three facets of God's amazing saving grace that we see in Jonah's story um, that other points of Scripture also affirm and that hopefully we see in our own lives. First, grace is a work of God. Grace is a work of God, and I should say grace is a work of God alone, um, not in conjunction with anyone else, but grace is a work of God. All we contribute to our salvation is our sin, right? Right? Uh, the only thing we bring to the table is a need for a Savior, uh, and that need comes from our brokenness, our rebellion, our disobedience. Uh, grace is a work of God. So from the jump, we see grace all over the story of Jonah. There's grace in inviting Jonah to be a messenger of God, being invited into the process of proclaiming, uh, even in judgment, it's still a warning, right? God could just go and wipe him out. So there's a sense in which he's saying, go and proclaim judgment to them, which gives them time to repent and turn to the Lord. 
There's grace in being invited into this ministry. We see grace in the idea that the Ninevites will be warned about their impending judgment. We see God's grace toward the Ninevites at the end of chapter 3 when he relents and does not do damage to them like he had planned to do. We see the grace of God in chapter 1 when God appoints a giant fish to swallow Jonah up and vomit him back onto the land. That wasn't a pleasant experience, but it was still a life-saving experience for Jonah. So there is second chance. There is new life, renewed life in sending the fish. Uh, Another thing that those much smarter than me pointed out is that the gender of the fish kind of changes in the original Hebrew, uh, and most commentators uh, agree that this is because the idea of being swallowed up usually was an act of destruction. If you look in the Old Testament and kind of ancient... um, texts and descriptions of these things being swallowed up by the ground or by a beast or by whatever uh, usually meant death. And so in kind of changing the gender of the uh, great fish, uh, Will told me that there are some commentators who believe that it was actually multiple fish kind of sharing this Jonah snack, like uh, spitting him out and swallowing him up and taking turns. Um, But I think the consensus, and this makes sense to me, is that uh, changing the gender changes it from belly to womb. And so uh, not only is Jonah just in the belly of a fish being eaten and, and digested, he is in the womb getting this second chance at life, right? He's being vomited back out. Um, and so there's kind of a rebirth, this restart for Jonah. And so, um, again, that's just kind of like fun fact Jonah uh, stuff. Um, but I, I thought that was an interesting point that was being made. All of these examples uh, of God at work Uh, It's not Jonah at work, it's not the sailors at work, it's God at work, and it's God moving or acting first. Grace is always God moving or acting or deciding to save before anyone even asks him to. Grace is God initiating, moving toward us before we move toward him. Grace is God initiating and moving toward us before we even think about moving toward him. Our call to worship from Ephesians 2 said that we are saved by grace, which is a gift from God. I once heard grace defined uh, as not only the unmerited favor of God, which is often, it's often referred to, but the unsolicited unmerited favor of God, meaning we haven't even asked for God's grace or thought about God's grace, and he's already chosen to extend grace and even put things in motion to save, to bless, to redeem, to act toward us. He's already determined these things as acts of love toward us. Scripture says that before the foundation of the world, right, that there was a plan for Jesus to come and give up his life for us. That's grace before we even existed, before we even had a chance to disobey and think about needing a Savior. There was a plan in place. That's grace moving first toward us. In Jonah's case, Jonah surrendered himself, presumably again unto death, to be thrown over the ship, thinking, I'm just going to remove myself from the world, remove myself from the equation. But God had determined to save him because God had plans for Jonah, and he wasn't going to let Jonah off the hook. There's no pun intended there, but if you want one. Uh, So the great fish which came to swallow Jonah is a grace sent from God for Jonah's salvation. And in the belly of the fish, he prays. He turns to the Lord. 
In his prayer, Jonah acknowledges God's grace. He describes his very real close encounter with death as waves crashed over, as floods surrounded him, as weeds wrapped around his head, and he comes to the brink of death. And it says that he went down, right? This Again, this uh, taking ownership of I went down, I rebelled, I disobeyed, and yet God, yet you, he says to God, brought me up from the pit. You brought up my life from the pit. God's salvation physically for Jonah in chapter 2 and spiritually for all of us who trust him by faith is a matter of us contributing to our peril, right? We, we don't accidentally end up in this place of separation from God. It's intentional, as we talked about last week. But God rescues us when we have no hope or no ability to rescue ourselves. Jonah could do nothing to save himself in this sea, but that's how God shows his grace towards him, doing what only God can do to save him. Stuck in an inescapable pit, God moves to save us when only he can, because he wants to. This is grace. It is the work of God, not us. Secondly, grace changes our minds and our actions. Grace changes our minds and actions. This is another amazing aspect of grace. It has the power to change how we think and therefore how we live because if we're convinced of something, then our actions follow that. Grace convinces our minds, which creates new or different convictions in us, and then our behaviors change according to our convictions. We see God's grace moving people to turn to him throughout this story. The men in the boat see the power of God with the grace of enough time to find out who he is And when told who he is, they call out to him by name, right? Not just to this other God, to Jonah's God. They call out to Yahweh, believing that he is the one capable of calming the sea and sparing their lives. They fear God. They offer him sacrifices. They make vows to him. These are changed minds, changed hearts, changed lives. The people of Nineveh, evil as they were and deserving of every last bit of destruction that God had promised them, when they heard God's message of warning, believed God and repented. To repent means to think differently, to have one's mind changed about something. In the Old Testament, it carries more of the idea of turning or returning. So this idea of turning away from something or returning to something that you need to be returning to. In the New Testament, the Greek, it carries more of the idea of changing of the mind. But I think together we have this full picture of a changed mind turns from something or returns to something. Notice the Ninevites didn't just believe God and then carry on with their normal evil lives. They believed God, they fasted, they put on sackcloth, this idea of of kind of mourning or grieving their their actions, their evil, um, turning from their evil ways. This is a people who've been transformed by God's work of grace. Their minds are changed to believe and trust in God, and their lives are changed to fall in line with those beliefs. Only something as powerful as the grace of God could change someone's mind and actions like this. I came across an example of some people being introduced to something so amazing and world-changing that I wanted to show you all this morning. Uh, We have a clip. Deacon's going to play this. Hold on. Uh, Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. on. Let me set it up just a little bit. Uh, these are high school students in England, 
and, and their headmaster is also part of this, uh, and they're trying southern biscuits, gravy, fried chicken, and sweet tea for the first time. Uh, and so they filmed their reaction. So let's watch their enlightenment uh, as they try these things for the first time. I love my chicken. You can dip some in the gravy and see what it's like together. It's gonna be lovely. Mmm. Absolutely amazing. <laughs> it's just violating the chicken. <laughs> I, want to, I want to taste the chicken, man. That's great. That's great, isn't it? Oh, wow, for real. <laughs> it actually makes me happy. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my God. <laughs> Oh my god. The biscuits and the, and the gravy on its own, not, oh, not amazing cranberry, but the chicken, the chicken is good with the gravy and the biscuit. This is good. Why did they make this? <laughs> no, this, this is so good. This is actually so good. Yeah, it's lovely. It's one of the best things I've had with chicken in my life. Really? So, it's okay. Big bit of gravy on the chicken. Absolutely lovely. <laughs> I don't know how it works. Gravy sausage, a fake scone, and chicken. <laughs> and it somehow all works. They're so good. What do you normally have a biscuit in the UK with? Cup of tea. Cup of tea. In the South, they've also developed their own culture for biscuits and tea. They put gravy in tea now. No, 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 you don't have tea with gravy. It's, it's Southern tea. First thoughts, I thought it was Coke. Looks like a Coke, doesn't it? Why is it cold if it's tea? <laughs> mm, I'm very reluctant. Is this your first ever iced tea? Yeah, yeah I know, right? we haven't experienced life yet. <laughs> right. Come, let's do, let's do cheers. That's nice, that's proper nice. Yeah, yeah, this one, yeah. this is the winner. Yeah. This is better, all of them. Iced tea is so good. <laughs> oh my days. Really sweet. I really like it. <laughs> you know what? I think that's better than hot tea. Wow. If I gave this to like my mum and dad, if they didn't like this more, we would have problems. Oh, wow. You hear that, Theo's parents? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so good. It's more sugary than Coke, but I think it's a lot better. You're finishing that already. It's quite nice. It's quite, quite nice. There's a lot of sugar. A lot of sugar. It's a lot of sugar. <laughs> By the end of this, I'm going to be bouncing off the walls. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any more of this? Yeah. You want more tea? Your teachers are not going to like us later today. <laughs> How does that compare to the tea and biscuits that you know? Uncomparable. It's like comparing a, a Ferrari yeah. with a Ford. Which one's the Ferrari? So, and that's part of a, a longer video. I tried to cut it down, and I could have made it shorter, but I wanted to show you the, the one hater who was like, it's all right. Um, when he had the sweet tea, he was finally convinced, right? And he was like, oh, it's quite nice. Um, but I love the, the, one, the one kid who was like, it makes me happy how good it is. Um, I don't know, why am I crying? Um, he, experiencing something so good that you didn't know existed, and your whole, what you thought, right, was like the height of snack or whatever uh, in England. They joke at the end about like um, things that wouldn't make sense to us, like beans on toast. Um, they're like, but it works. Beans on toast works. Yeah, but the one kid's like, yeah, but there's just one flavor. Like beans have one flavor. He's like, there's so much in all of this, like so many flavors. Um, you know, they bring out the gravy and they're like, that's not gravy because um, they're used to brown gravy. Anyway. This idea of being introduced to something you didn't even know existed and 
having your mind blown by how good it is. And I love that phrase. It makes me happy how good it is. It's like, again, this is just a shadow. Every example is a, uh, a glimpse, a foretaste. It doesn't compare to the actual beauty of the grace of God. But how life-changing, how minds are changed when we encounter the grace of God and how it should make us happy how good it is. It's just unbelievable to say, I can't understand how it's this good. That's the sense that these guys are giving, right? I don't understand how this works. I don't understand how it works together. And I don't understand why it's so good. But it makes me happy and I want more of it. That's the grace of God towards us. We've talked about this in our, in our community group that sometimes we think about the grace of God and we're like, I don't get it. It doesn't make sense that God would save a sinner like me. And yet it's so good. It works. And I want more of that grace. And I want to share it with others. And this is, again, just changing hearts and minds to turn from a previous idea or way of life and turn to something that is better and better for us and truer. That's what God's grace is calling us to. Another uh, kid, again, he said this is better than hot tea, right? It's all they've known is hot tea. And he said, if I took this to my parents and they didn't think it was better, we'd have problems. This idea of this is, this is my new way of life, right? That's kind of what he was saying. This is my new way to drink tea. Um, and anything that competes with that is going to be an obstacle to how I want to drink tea from now on. So when God calls us out of darkness, out of our sin, and saves us by his grace, right? It's, we, we've been reoriented around this new life that we've been exposed to in the grace of God. We can't go back. We can't ignore what we experienced. Our lives have been reshaped, and it's because we have new life. Scripture tells us it's not just that we've added Jesus or grace to our previous spiritually dead life. We've been given new life in Christ. And so our new lives act a certain way. Our new lives have a new purpose. Our new lives have new affections. And so if we're in Christ, we have new life in Christ. And so we desire different things. We, uh, our minds and uh, our hearts are set on different things. With this new life comes a new mission, right? We have a new purpose, our final point this morning, grace commissions us. Grace commissions us. Consider again our call to worship from Ephesians 2. It says we were created in Christ for good works, which God prepared for us beforehand that we might walk in them. So we are saved by grace through faith for good works that God made ready for us to walk in before we even considered who he was. He had a plan for us. He had new life to offer us and a new life with a new mission before we even existed. Jonah is commissioned to Nineveh in chapter 1, verse 2, right out of the gate. And I try to remind us of this all the time, that it is a grace from God to be invited into his ministry of reconciling sinners to himself. God doesn't have to use us. He doesn't have to use his people, the church, but he chose to. He chose to invite us into his mission of redemption. This is more grace toward us to be used by him in this way. We're instruments in the hands of God for his purpose. I thought this was another uh, interesting um, note on the text of Jonah. There's a connection here um, in the previous chapters of Jonah and his mission and his rebellion. 
um, Jonah becomes useless, in a sense, in his rebellion because he's not acting according to the mission that God has called him to. He's acting outside of the purpose that God has created him for. He points out that Jonah's purpose has been determined by God and how off course we become and how off course Jonah became when we abandon our purpose or our calling. We see this in the text of Jonah. They emphasize the similarities between Jonah and the cargo in the ship. They rest in the same place, right? He, he sleeps in this cargo hold, so he's kind of counted among the cargo. As he's in rebellion, he's just another piece of luggage basically on this ship going somewhere. And then there's this repetition of the verb hurled. If you look in chapter 1, we first see it when God hurled a great wind. And so we start to see how things that are being hurled are instruments in the hand of God. And so he hurls a wind. The wind is an instrument of the Lord. And then the cargo is hurled. Again, it's just instruments being tossed overboard. It's no longer serving its purpose. It's now weighing down the ship. It's part of the destruction, the impending doom. And so they say, we need to get rid of it. And so they hurl the cargo. And then Jonah comes to them and says, hurl me into the sea. He's just another instrument being used by God. And he thinks, again, Jonah thinks it's his plan to just kind of remove himself from the equation, but God has plans for him. Instead of him being a useless piece of cargo, God sends the grace of the great fish because he still had plans for him. Can God turn us over to our selfishness, let us miss out on the mission he has saved us for? He can. But with Jonah and sometimes with us, he extends the grace of offering another chance to obey and follow And Jonah goes to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord, finally, right? He finally, he arises, and we're like, oh, which way is he going to go? And he goes to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. So he's finally in obedience with what God has called him to. We see in chapter 3 that Nineveh is noted again for its great size, described as a three-day journey, and Jonah makes it a day in. Uh, Some think that this is kind of showing that he didn't really go as far as he was supposed to. He's kind of got this half-hearted approach to proclaiming his message. Combine that with the message, this great, powerful sermon that he delivers. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. Like, that's his whole message. No uh, repent. No, there is grace. There is forgiveness. Uh, Turn from your ways. Just listen. Judgment's coming. And so we get this sense, and again, chapter 4 kind of emphasizes this a little bit more for us, that he, he wants the judgment to come right? I'm proclaiming judgment, and I'm kind of happy about it that I get to proclaim judgment upon you people. But it didn't matter. didn't matter what Jonah preached. God used it. If nothing else in Jonah had put a spotlight on God's sovereignty to this point, his sermon and the response to it definitely put the spotlight on God's sovereignty. The message is, you're going to die, right? In 40 days, you're all going to be wiped out. That's basically all he tells them. And yet the people believed God, not Jonah, right? They didn't trust in Jonah. They heard the word of the Lord, the message of God through Jonah. They repented. Word reached the king. So this is almost kind of more evidence that word had to travel among the people because Jonah is not spreading the word among the people. He's not canvassing the way he should be. And yet the king catches word of this message, and the king repents. 
which shows us again, this is the message of God, not the words of Jonah, the message of God traveling through this pagan people to the king. The king repents, and then he sends out this message for everyone to turn from their ways. More people believe and turn from their evil, and God relents. He doesn't send the judgment he had promised. When God wants to do something, he's going to do it. When God wants to use someone, he's going to use them. Despite Jonah's best efforts to rebel, to steer the outcome of his mission, to thwart God's plan of redemption for Nineveh, God did as he pleased. The sailors acknowledge this. They use this term in chapter 1. O Lord, again, Yahweh, you have done as it pleased you. They're seeing and proclaiming the sovereignty of God. Jonah acknowledges it and sums it up in chapter 2, verse 9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He prays this from the belly of the fish. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's God's mission that we're invited to participate in, but it's also the purpose for which we've been created. Keeping in mind that salvation belongs to God, it's his mission worth participating in. That should shape our perspective on everything. It's a grace to be able to partake in the process of someone else's redemption. If we rebel against that, then we miss out on the blessing. Jonah, in anger, in spite, is proclaiming, reluctantly proclaiming judgment on Nineveh, missing out on the blessing that God could have used in him to proclaim a message of uh, forgiveness and redemption. And God saves all these evil people that turn from their ways and turn to, to the Lord. Should be something for Jonah to rejoice in, and we'll see next week that he does not. But God saves who he wants to save, how he wants to save them. Jonah's seen this play out despite his rebellion. It's my prayer through this series and through this morning that we would see the good, the bad, the ugly of trying to circumvent God's grace. We need to learn from that. That you can't circumvent the grace of God, the plans of God, that salvation belongs to the Lord that he does as he pleases. This grace is God's work to change hearts and minds and repurpose our lives. Let's pray. God, thank you yet again for your uh, amazing grace. Thank you for the example, as silly as it might have been, to see someone trying just delicious food for the first time and um, how their minds are changed about it. God, may it just again be a shadow, um, a weak um, copy of what has happened in our lives when we experience your grace. That our minds would be blown at just how amazing it is, how good it is, how sweet your love and grace are towards us that we can't believe it, we can't, we can't understand how it works, but it does. God, may we spiritually and in worship echo the words of that young man who just said, it makes me happy how good it is. God, may, it, may we be joyful as we contemplate your grace, as we walk in your grace as we enjoy your grace and extend your grace to others. May it be evident how our lives have been changed and transformed, how our minds have been changed, how we repent from our former ways. 
repent of our rebellion, turning to you. And God, not just for salvation and this everlasting life, but this new mission, this new purpose that you've called us to, that we don't get to decide the mission, the goal, the aim of our lives, that you have repurposed us. You are the center of our dreams, our hopes, our aspirations for what we accomplish this side of heaven. God, you've saved us for your glory, your purposes, according to your grace that you've worked in our lives. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.